open ourselves in Job chapter 1, and we'll begin, uh, gosh, I don't know, several weeks, maybe a few months journey as we work our way through uh, what's, <laughs> I say this all the time, every time I come to a new book, what's uh, rapidly becoming one of my favorite books. Um, it's not very often I feel like there's... Um, something new. I don't know that there's really ever anything new under the sun. But but I think there's a challenge for us as we open up the book of Job to not make the mistake that so many people make going before us. Oftentimes when we open up the book of Job, we'll say Job is about uh, suffering and God's sovereignty. And if we do that, we are being man-centric. And the story of Job is not the story of a man. The story of Job is the story of God choosing a a champion to prove to Satan that men don't follow him because of what he gives them or because of how he protects him. You have... Uh, a, a prologue and an epilogue. You have several letters in the middle uh, from Job's friends. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the book, Job's Friends uh, uh, Challenging Job. But what if we look at it from the point of view of what's happening to Job and the suffering that Job's going through, you, you, you miss the subject. The subject of the book of Job, every one of his friends is saying to him, God blesses those who are righteous and holy And live their lives right. And that's just not what the Word of God teaches anywhere. The Word of God teaches us everywhere that there are none righteous, no, not one. And the real problem with Job's friends is the problem of self-righteousness. Which really is the real problem within much of the church today that feels that they have somehow on their own achieved some level of righteousness that's not wholly and completely given to them by grace and mercy. And Job's response to every one of those letters is saying, no, God functions grace and mercy. God doesn't change. And that's a really important concept for us to consider in light of the events that happened to Job. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to draw those things out as we take a look at it. So when we look at Job, here's what I want you to grasp. Here's the, here's the, the focus on the book of Job. It's about God. It's about God's character. It's about God's nature. It's about God's perspective. And it's about God's concerns. You're going to hear all of Job's friends talking to Job about how they think God relates to him. And you're going to hear Job respond and say, No, God doesn't relate to me based on the things I have done or I haven't done. He relates to me on the basis of grace and mercy. You're going to see Job defending the concept in the very first few chapters that every man is a sinner and in need of covering. And that's kind of mind-blowing when you get this concept. 
Job's not a Jew. Job's not a, a, a member of the church. Job, the book of Job, was written approximately 2000 B.C. It puts him all the way back to Abraham. And it's about an area or a place that was far to the east from where the typical Bible stories are given. And for some reason, this book of Job, before the cross, before uh, uh, we see Abraham and, and the example that Abraham is to the people around him, you're going to see Job anticipate the resurrection. For I know my Redeemer lives. Where'd that come from? Hadn't even been revealed to Abraham yet. That's incredible, the things that we see coming out of Job. You're going to see that Job had a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Where'd that come from? It wasn't based on his nationality. There was no chosen people yet. Job's going to emphasize that. We're going to see that Job understood that his relationship to God was dependent on God's grace. And not on his works. Which predates every argument about grace and works in the entire book. Yeah, that's good news, huh? That's good news. It's good news. We see, as we look at this, we're going to see Job's four friends. Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Who are all going to try to change Job's mind in terms of how he sees his relationship to God. And in the end, keep this straight in your mind. God's going to say, Job is right. What's he right about? That our relationship with God is predicated on grace and mercy. And not because we are righteous enough or good enough. And it's, it's all written for us. It's all laid out for us uh, as we work our way through. And for you and me... So often we look at this and we focus on the wrong things. So I'm hopeful that as we go through our study, we won't be focusing on the wrong things. I think the application for us is, can my relationship with God survive my experiences in this fallen world? Can my relationship with God survive my experiences in this fallen world? Because, well, you're going to receive good and you're going to have bad. And what I want you to remember in those two things, that God didn't change in either one of them. God didn't change. All that changed was the events surrounding us. And if I come to Job and I focus on man, I'm missing the subject of the book. If I come to Job focused on God, I'm going to grasp 
the subject. I'm going to see what it is that God is trying to reveal to us, that God wants us to, to lay hold of and understand from it. We have to come to it God-centered. Job is an individual that God looks at and says, Job's going to be my champion in this battle. Job's going to be the guy who's going to take the fight to the enemy. When the enemy does what he does, the accuser of the brethren, and accuses the, the... Weakness or immorality of God's character and nature. It's Job who's going to prove what God says in the beginning is true. It's not about suffering. I can find you 65 books that talk about suffering. I don't think we need a book about suffering. If I'm going to study suffering, I'm going to go to the life of Christ who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who suffered abundantly more than we can ever fathom. When I come to Job, I'm going to study God's champion, the man God picked to defend his character against Satan, who didn't even understand what was going on, but understood one concept... In the good in my life and in the bad in my life, God didn't change. He's the same God. That's why he says, God giveth, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Nothing changed. He is still God whether it's raining or it's not. Whether it's storming or it's not. He is still the most important thing in Job's life. And if we can grab a hold of that, man, that's going to serve us well. He begins, There was a man in the land of Uz." whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. So there's four things that the Lord tells us about Job before we get started. And we have to remind ourselves of these because it helps us stay on track as we, as we study. That this is not God's punishment of the wicked. It's the reality of life in a fallen world. And it's the reality of us coming to an understanding. God is not obligated to protect you. God is not obligated to protect me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't. It means He's not obligated to it. That's important to understand. The Lord instructed Adam and Eve. He could have wrapped Satan up, the serpent up in a little cage and never let him out. But he didn't. 
he didn't protect Abel from his brother Cain. He didn't protect the world from the flood. He didn't protect Joseph from his brothers, from his master's wife, or from those who had cast him into prison. He didn't protect Egypt in the Exodus. And many times he didn't protect Israel. He doesn't always protect the godly or the ungodly. He didn't protect Rakshak and Benny. Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for those of you who don't have VeggieTales. And one of the greatest things that we see from them, the great example of those three teenagers, is the fact that they say, Look, King, our God's able to deliver us from your hands, but even if he won't, we're not going to bow. What were they saying? Whether God delivers us out of this evil or not, We're following him. The book of Job is all about learning to do that. Learning to be that person that is not, well, God, if you save me from this, I'll follow you forever. No, you won't. You won't. If you'll follow him in the muck, then you'll follow him forever. But if you're only looking for the sunshine and the roses, what did Jesus say? In this world you will have tribulation. God didn't protect Stephen. God didn't protect Peter. And if that's not enough for you, God didn't protect his own son. God is not obligated to spare us from all the things that the enemy can throw at us. He's not obligated to those things. And when God comes and he tells us who Job is and how Job's walking and what emphasizes Job's life, the point is not Job is righteous, so... Nothing bad will ever happen to him. Right? We know the story. First he says Job is blameless. That means he's above reproach. Above reproach. That doesn't mean that he's never done anything wrong or that he's perfect. It means that he lives his life by a a moral code. He walks the talk. Also tells us that he's upright. He desired to walk with God. That's what it means to be upright. It mattered to him. His goal in life was to walk with God. His goal in life was not to have more camels or horses or children or a bigger house or more money. His goal was to walk with God. You know other people like that? About Genesis chapter 5, you meet one that says that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. Means that the desire in Enoch's life was to walk with the Lord. God was preeminent. 
He was central. He was the reason behind the things that we do. Not just another scraping out another day of existence. Is that what we live for? Another buck? Another couple hundred thousand? Most do. But that's not what Christ has called us to, is it? His words, he said, unless you forsake all. What's it look like to forsake all? Well, I think it looks like letting go of everything else and grabbing hold of him. Holding on to Christ. Holding on to the Lord. He's blameless. He's upright. One who feared God. That means his life was a life that responded in worship and obedience. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, Job predates that writing by a substantial amount. So Job would be probably the earliest point in which that phrase is written. That he feared God. He walked with the Lord. That he worshipped him and followed him. And then he shunned evil. He resisted temptation. Jesus said in John chapter 3. That the Lord, or the scripture tells, the Lord didn't come to condemn the world. But that through him the world might be saved. And then it says, this is the condemnation of the world. What? The light came. But men loved darkness rather than the light. You know what that word love is? Agapeo. That men had a self-sacrificing love for evil. For the dark. That's why men are condemned. Job is battling against that. All of the things that we see about Job are things that we, we ought to see in the life of any believer. But as we, as we get this, this prologue of what's going on in the life of Job, what things are happening in his life, we're introduced to, to his Spiritual leadership, so we understand that he's an upright guy, that he's walking in obedience to God, that he's in the right place. And we'll see why all those things are true in just a moment. And verse 2, we're introduced to his family. He's a blessed man. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Ten children were born to him. So he's got a full family. In verse 3, we're introduced to his possessions, all his stuff. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Seven sons, three daughters. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. That makes him exceedingly more wealthy than Abraham was. And Abraham was exceedingly wealthy. So he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a great family. He's got a a spiritual leadership working within him. 
So that this man was the greatest of all of the people of the East. All of the people of the East. Job was the greatest. But you know what else it tells us here? It doesn't tell us that his possessions were an asset. And it doesn't tell us that his possessions were a liability. Possessions are just possessions. They're just tools. It's just stuff. It doesn't make you more successful or less successful. It doesn't make you more important or less important. It's just stuff. And all our stuff is gonna burn. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. Verse 4, it says, And his sons would go and feast in their houses. Each on his appointed day would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So in his family, he experienced a, a, a kind of unity in his family. He experienced that. I mean, his family all ate together. That happened for all you guys? Oh, I got three boys, and I don't eat with them every day. I know some of you have that kind of unity. I got one that don't live all that far away. Can't seem to find his way back home. Uh, unless he's out of food, then he can find his way back home. They had this unified family gathered together. The, the, all the siblings, right, were close. They're eating together, they're spending time together, and they would invite their sisters. It was a, it was a close family unit. But it says in verse 5, So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. Well, what's that mean? When the days of the feast were over, Job would send and sanctify them. That Job would reach out to his kids and make sure that they understood their relationship to God. It was important to Job. And what we're going to see here is he understood that that relationship with God had nothing to do with what I have, what I did, or who I am. It has far more to do with who he is. He says he would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 2000 B.C. Folks, that's before Moses. That's before sacrificial system. That's before the law. That's way back to Abraham. He would do a burnt... Who taught him? Who showed him? How did he know the things that he knew? How did he have an understanding of the things that would make him right with God? Because what he's saying is here is that I recognize sinful actions result in separating us from God. Don't miss that. 
Sinful actions result in separating us from God. So what would he do? Offer a sacrifice and a sacrificial system that had not even existed yet. Moses doesn't get it till Mount Sinai. See, Job understood. I have a relationship with God, not based on what I do, but based on His grace and mercy. He's already offering sacrifices, which we know God had way back with Adam and Eve, didn't they? We know all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Why did Cain kill Abel? What was the fight about? A sacrifice, right? So who showed Adam and Eve the sacrificial system? The idea that God's relationship with us is predicated on grace and mercy. That He forgives us based on the fact that we understand something has to die for our sin. And that He extends to us grace and mercy and forgiveness in that place. So Abel makes his offering before God. And Cain makes his offering before God. And one of those offerings is predicated on the understanding that this offering is in my, my holding to the concept that I need the Lord. And the other was offered in the concept of, hey man, I'm a pretty good guy. One was blood. One was works the fruit of his hands the things that he grew the stuff that he did and God looked at Cain and he said to Cain Cain why are you so downcast if you do well you'll be accepted in other words, if you understand that you can't work yourself to a relationship with me, but you understand that the relationship that we have, that me and Abel have, that me and your parents have, is predicated on grace and mercy, and you come just in a simple understanding that, that shows that, just by doing what, what I've said. Come to see grace extended, not to earn. You have to come with blood. You'll be accepted. But Cain, sin is at the door of your heart and its desire is to rule over you. But you should rule over it. And within two verses, he killed his brother. Job understood that the heart of man is damaged. That the nature within man leads to sin. And he knew when my kids gather together and they have their feast, it's pretty likely that something happened in there that was not in accordance with the God we worship. So the morning, early in the morning when it was over, he's already there. Sent to them to sanctify them, to tell them, hey guys, you know, we, we want to make sure that our relationship with God is, is in a good place. And if there was anything sinful that happened last night, we're separated from God. So, so we're going to offer a burnt offering. Before burnt offerings were existed. We're going to offer a burnt offering so that our relationship with God is, is okay. 
That's not a man who's walking around just and holy and blameless and perfect and so I'm perfect with God and, and it's all because of how good I am. That's a man who's walking around with God and understands we are separated from Him. And so we have to come to the Lord based on what He's asking for. That we would understand the soul that sins must die. Something dies when we sin. And God will forgive us if we come with this. If we come in this manner. If we come in this way. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this Job did regularly. As often as he needed to. As often as the thought entered into his mind. Look, I can't stand based on my own strength or my own ability. I am not righteous alone. I am righteous because of what Christ has done for me. I am righteous because of His sacrifice. I'm righteous because He's justified me by grace. He sanctifies me based on His mercy. Because I believe... Because I have received the finished work of His Son, the ultimate sacrifice. Job's doing all that just before any of that was going on. And the Scripture tells us, Now there was a day when the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. That phrase, by the way, is only twice in the Old Testament. The Beni Elohim, the sons of God. It's not in the New Testament. Beni Elohim is Hebrew. The sons of God that we see the church being called is a totally different thing. If we're wondering... What the rabbis thought about that phrase is not hard. We can go to 270 B.C. and open up the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the rabbis translated sons of God as the angels of God. Now, some people don't like that. It's definitely angels in Job. Why wouldn't it be angels in Genesis? Why would the same phrase mean something else? I don't think it would. Side note, twice, if I say to you, I'm going to have a watermelon, and in two weeks I say I'm going to have a watermelon, one of them doesn't mean cantaloupe. They both mean watermelon. It's not a hard concept to grasp, is it? It's not just random. It Just because it creates problems for us... <laughs> Just because it creates a problem in our mind and we go, what? How can that be? Well, that's not the text problem. That's our brain's problem. Nonetheless, in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. Came before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Satan also came among them. Sometimes I, I, I confuse people. I confused somebody not too long ago because I said something to the effect that nobody's in hell right now. 
And they go, what are you talking about? Well, until the great white throne judgment, nobody's in hell. You know, all those pictures we get in our mind where the devil's in hell and he's sending his demons here and there to do things and he's busy torturing the dead who were unrighteous. Well, some of that mindset comes out of of different literature. But here, so we can kind of grasp it. There's three words in the Bible that that talk about hell. Uh, The first one is the word Hades, which doesn't mean hell, but it's oftentimes translated as hell. It means the grave. There are people in the grave. But that's not hell. In In the Greek, you also have two other phrases... Tartarus and Gehenna. Each of those are descriptive of a place that we know as the Lake of Fire. Do you know who the first two people are who go into the Lake of Fire? The Antichrist and the false prophet. So if they're the first two people who go in, where's everybody else? They're in Hades. What was Hades? The grave. When we come to Revelation chapter 20, uh, Revelation chapter 21, it says that death and Hades gave up the dead. And all the great and the small came before the great white throne. And books were opened, and a book was opened called the Lamb's Book of Life. And anyone's name who was not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, then they went to hell. Then they went to hell. Where is the devil right now? He's not in hell. The Bible says he is called, in in, in this section of scripture, he's specifically called Satan. What's Satan mean? It means accuser. The accuser. He's the accuser. Now, how's he accusing? He's not sitting in a little throne in hell. Saying, hey, send a teletype up to God and tell God that so-and-so is the knucklehead and I accuse him. No, where's he accusing him? Just like Job's talking about. The sons of God were passing before the Lord and Satan was with him. The accuser, he's accusing them. Now, so he's up there accusing them. Today, not in the time of Job, today somebody else is up there interceding. Who's that? Jesus. What's the Bible say? Jesus Christ is our advocate, our lawyer. So the accuser, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Is he, is he accusing the lost? No, who cares about the lost? They're going to hell. Who's he accusing? The church, the believers, the, the, the righteous those who have, have come to faith in God and, and are upright before God and they want to walk before God and they want to live their lives for the Lord. That's who he's up there accusing. Today, after the crucifixion, Christ is up there with us saying, Dad, my blood covers that. He's clean. Until Revelation chapter 12 happens. You guys remember Revelation chapter 12? And there was war in heaven. The heaven was perfect. There was no place found for the devil anymore. How come? 
I mean, don't he have more brethren to accuse? Apparently not. I would argue when we look at Romans, or I'm sorry, when we look at Revelation chapter 12, when we get there in a few weeks, when we get to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to say that the dragon is ready to devour the woman who gives birth to the child, and the child is Christ, and then Christ is snatched up into heaven. And people will say, yeah, Jesus ascended. And I'll say, the body of Christ is in heaven. I don't care what you want to argue about when it happens. I don't really care. All I know is Jesus said, live every day like it could be today. I was sharing with somebody today. My eschatology is flexible. What? Yeah. If I find myself in the middle of the tribulation, I'll be a mid-tribber. If I find myself toward the end of the tribulation, I'll be a pre-rather. If I find myself at the end of the tribulation and it's all over, I'll be a post-tribber. You know, none of those phrases are in the Bible, right? None of them. What is in the Bible? Jesus saying, A faithful servant waits for his master every day. And a wicked servant says his master delays his coming. So, until there's some reason not to believe he's coming for me before the tribulation, I'm believing he's coming. That's the only way I can believe in an imminent return of Christ. That I can say he can come today. If I'm a mid-tribber, he can't come today. If I'm a post-tribber, he can't come today. If I'm a pre-wrath, he can't come today. If I'm pre-trib, he can come today. My eschatology is flexible. So I'm guaranteed not to be wrong. As if I find myself in the middle of the tribulation period, I can say Jesus can come tomorrow because that's pretty close to the middle of the tribulation. Or if I find myself past that, I can say, I'm going to be a pre-wrath. Because what people don't understand is pre-wrath is actually after the middle of the tribulation. So all those segues are simply to say we're supposed to live our life looking for Christ all the time. Always looking for Him. So in Revelation 12, when that occurs, Satan's thrown out. No more accuser in heaven. Why is there a new heaven and a new earth? Yep. Why did it pass away? Because heaven is stained. What do you mean? Well, Satan's been there, so sin's been in heaven. You're going to wash that place out. New heaven, new earth. So right now, in Job... It's kind of important that we understand Satan's in heaven accusing. Not in hell, planning his rebellion. He's walking to and fro, it says in Peter, right? Like a, like a what, roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Isn't that the same thing we see in Job? Basically the same thing. He says they, they stood before God. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, What's it say? From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. What did Peter say? He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. So Peter is in a, saying that around 50 AD and Job is saying around 2000 BC. Though it's been that way at least that long. Right? 
So he's, he's walking to and fro, looking whom he may devour. And it says in verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, fears God and shuns evil. The same four things he said in the beginning. So Satan makes his challenge. Satan makes the challenge. What is the challenge? The challenge is a character of God and our relationship to Him. It's built on things that I have done. That's what Job's friends are going to say. Or is it built on things given to me by God? That's what Satan's going to say. Or is it going to be what Job says? It's built on God's grace and mercy. Why? Does Job serve God? Why do you? Because life's good? Because you got good stuff? Because you're a good person? Or because of God's grace and mercy extended to you? It's one of those choices. That's the battle that Satan begins. Look, Satan shouts out and he says... He says to him, so Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? He's attacking God's character. He's attacking God's agenda. He's attacking God's people. That's what's occurring there in heaven. This is about who God is, not who Job is. This is about, this is about the Lord. He's saying, Job only follows you because you bless him. He follows you because of the possessions you give him. And he follows you because of the protection you give him. And God says, nope. That's not why Job follows me. So God chooses Job as his champion. Satan says, Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all the things he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and take all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, God, if you take away the possessions you've given him and the protection you have over him, he'll hate you. He won't love you. about the character of God it's about God choosing a champion and what we have to understand when we come to verse 12 is that God's in charge Satan can't touch him right Satan touch you nope can anything happen to you that God doesn't let Nothing. Nothing. Stop trying to defend God for the bad things that happen in your life. We live in a fallen, screwed up world. And God allows what He allows for His purposes. Because His reasons are higher than our reasons. And we don't understand them. But God didn't change. When your life was perfect, God was still the same as He is now when your life is sideways. God's still the same. 
If he's worthy of worship in the good, he's worthy of worship in the bad. If he's worthy of worship when things go your way, he's worthy of worship when they don't. His character is impeccable. And he is immutable. He don't change. He don't flip. He is good. He is loving. He is sovereign all the time. Not most of the time. And we have to understand because what, what Job's been relating and what we're seeing here is something else that we got to grasp. And that is that, that God is a personal God. He knew Job. And Satan is personal. So did he. And God is not a force. And Satan is not a force. It's not yin and yang. It's not, I don't know what else, weirdness. It's personal. Personal. What Romans would declare to us is that evil lives in your heart. It's inside of you. It is in your nature. Until you see Christ face to face, you are not saved from the presence of sin. Sin lives in you and its desire is to rule over you. But you should rule over it. And Satan is real. And he will use anything he can to entice that nature inside of you. To twist your desires and get you loving the darkness and rejecting the light. It's real. Real battle. Real people. Not fake people. It's not a parable. It's a real story. Parables don't have names. Real stories have names. Job is mentioned twice in Ezekiel and once in James as a real person. Not a parable. Real. God's not a parable. He's real. Satan's not a parable. He's real. And God is in control. Even when a doctor says cancer. God is in control. Even when a doctor has bad news. God is in control. Even when tragedy strikes, God is in control. And if he was worthy of your worship before, he's worthy of your worship still. Well, it says, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. But do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, we zoom back and we come back to our little buddy. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Remember all the brothers rotated? So now it's the oldest brother, firstborn, and all the daughters are there, all the kids are gathered together, and they're they're, uh, having a feast and drinking wine. And a messenger came to Job. And he said, The oxen were 
plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So the first thing that happens is somebody stole all his stuff. The way wealth was associated in 2000 BC was by how much stuff you had. But it's gone. Just like that, it can go, can it? I happen to remember a particular day in the stock market. I happen to remember it because of my dad. I forget what they called it. Was it black something? But huh? Black Friday. Whatever it was, my dad had his retirement from uh, whatever uh, uh, Lockheed, I think, he retired from. And the day after that, he had no retirement. That's how quick it goes. If the Lord was worthy of our worship before, and He's worthy of our worship after, God didn't change. All that changed is the stuff we have. If I'm centered only on myself, then that's all I'll think about. If I'm centered on God, then He's what I think about. And I think, well, He's still worthy of my praise. He's with me when I got nothing. He's with me when I got something. While the guy's still talking to Job, he's still telling him about it while he was still speaking in verse 16, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. The first one robbers took. The second one, natural disaster took. That's what they call an act of God, right? Fire fell from heaven. I remember this crazy day. I turned on the TV and they were talking about something like 120,000 people died in a moment. A wave of water washed over an island and they were gone. Nothing touches this earth that doesn't pass through God's hands. If God was worthy of worship before, He is worthy of worship after. If He's not worthy of worship after, He wasn't worthy of worship before. Don't get it both ways. God didn't change. Something happened. So the rest of his wealth is now gone. In a moment, it didn't take us very long to read those two verses. Every scrap of wealth he had, his possessions, is gone. All of his possessions are gone. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Bad day, right? While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a great wind. Tornado? A great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I have alone have escaped to tell you. 
And Job arose and he tore his robe. That's a sign of grief and sorrow. And he shaved his head. That's a call for a new beginning. I need a new beginning. He cut off all your hair and you'd, you'd burn it in the fire. And he fell to the ground. What's it say? I got to see that once. Close, close to that as I'll ever get. But I got to see that. I was bad time at uh, Joshua Springs years ago. It seemed like every time I turned around, somebody was dying. We just done a funeral for a baby whose uh, uh, father had run over her, and we were at. The dinner after the the celebration of life, the funeral service, I got a phone call. Hey, Jackie, one of your football players on a dirt bike, and they were just messing around, him and his buddies, and he he wrecked. It didn't really seem like that bad a wreck, but he landed in the rocks in his front yard, a, a little ways down from his house, and one of the rocks hit him in the chest, and uh, man, he was hurting really bad. So they actually called for a helicopter to come pick him up. Mercier took him to the hospital. And their family's all at the hospital. I want to know if you can come. That was like a crazy three or four weeks. And there was going to be a couple more after that. That wasn't the end. Well, we got in the car and I went down there to the hospital. And I'm sitting there with a, a, a family of all boys. Mom and dad. I, at one time or another, coached every single one of them. Well, this was the oldest one. And it seems such, such a little thing. He just, how many times have I fallen off a bike? For crying out loud, I hit a meat truck and flew into a front yard and got up and walked away. He just fell down in a yard. Landed on a rock. Doctors came in and gathered up the family. And we're all sitting together and we're praying and we're talking and we're waiting to hear, you know, What's going on? And so the doctor comes out and, and says, uh, Hey guys, I'm going to move you guys over to, to another room. That's always bad. They don't move you to another room to give you good news. I knew that because that's what they did with us with the baby. We were in the ER while they were trying to save her life. And they come and say, need to put you in another room. That way you can fall apart and nobody else has to see. So they put us all in that room and we're all kind of wondering, what's this mean? What's this mean? And uh, Doc came in and he said, look, when Jacob hit the rock with his chest, he fractured his sternum and, and a piece of the bone punctured his Aorta. And we can't stop it. We're going to try one more time. But if we can't stop it, he's going to die. He's married and had one baby and another on the way. I don't remember. Two babies? Two babies. So they went in and tried one more time. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, 
So, so when he comes in here, if it's bad news, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. What do, you to, what, do you, what do you tell a mom and dad just lost their eldest son? Better yet, what do you tell a man who just lost seven sons and three daughters? And all his wealth and everything he had. So, Doc came in. Really didn't have to say nothing. If you've ever been in that situation, you're pretty sure what the Doc's going to say when you see his face. So, I don't remember what his words were. I just remember I seen him and everybody knew. And he said, Jacob's gone. And that's when I saw it. Never seen something like that before. (laughs) I watched a dad whose heart was shattered. Lift up his hands. Say, I don't know why this happened, God, but (laughs) I praise you. You're still the same God you were yesterday. And I still love you. I don't know why, but I trust you. was unreal ain't never forgot it that's what Job did people read this and they say oh that doesn't happen well I'm here to tell you it does it does in the heart of a man who is God centered when his first thought is not about himself His first thought is about God. My baby's with you now. If you don't believe that, don't got a lot of hope. If you do, hope's all you got. Job ripped his his robe and he shaved his head. And he fell down on the ground and worshipped God. God picked him well. He was going to be God's champion. Champion the cause. Job's relationship to God didn't change when God took everything. God didn't take everything because Job was bad. And God didn't give everything because Job was good. God was still God. And Job knew it. And he knew God still loved me. And this does not mean God doesn't love me. And Job don't have the answer. And we're going to read through the book. And he don't have the answer when he gets to the end. But he knows one thing. God loves me. He's not punishing me. And he's going to fight to 30 some chapters about that. 
God still loved me even though he took all that away. And all his friends are going to say, no, he doesn't. And Job's going to say, yes, he does. And they're going to say, no, he doesn't. And then God's going to say, Job's right. It's not about what we have. How easy life is, or how good it is, or whether we're free of hardship in life. It's about you either believe or you don't. And if you do, it shouldn't be predicated on your stuff. Or that everything goes your way. God's still God. Man, this is what Job said and this is what we'll end with tonight. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with a wrong. That's the point. The challenge from Satan is against God's character. The chief moving piece or defense for God is the life of Job. And the chief enemies against the concept are going to be Job's friends. And Job and his friends are going are to play this thing out on earth, not even recognizing the spiritual realities that are happening around them. And the friends are all going to speak on behalf of the accuser. And Job is going to speak on behalf of the accused. God, they don't love you unless you give them something. They won't love you unless you protect them. They won't love you because of who you are. They'll only love you because of what you give. And Job's going to prove them wrong. Job is God's champion. And this book is about God. And what he's going to reveal about himself and his character through Job. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to, to study your word, God. And I pray we'll have a fresh insight, Lord. Not just another study through Job. Not just another look at suffering. And not just another look at... God's sovereignty. Pray, Lord, we see it with the eyes you intended us to see it with. Because you kept this story 2,000 years. Wow. Most people think Moses wrote it and he would have been taught it by his father-in-law. It's so important, the concept is so important, you ushered it through time from 2000 B.C. to today. It was in Qumran, it was in the Dead Sea, scrolls. It is a story that 
has your fingerprints all over it. And I just pray, God, that we come to recognize what it's all about. That we look at it and be God-centered. For it's about God. Is He worthy or isn't He worthy? And if He is, nothing should stop us from worshiping Him. No event, no tragedy, no hurt. Because He's the same today and yesterday and forever. And He is still going to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Pray we live out our lives trusting Him. Trusting the Lord. God, we praise You and we thank You. And we just ask, Lord, as we begin this study, that You would move and speak and guide and lead and be glorified in it. Because it's about You. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.